Hey there, it's Jonathan Tepperman, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy Magazine. So we have this new podcast I want to tell you about. It's called FP Playlist, and this is our first episode. The idea for the show is pretty simple. Each week, I'm going to help you make sense of the crazy mess of podcasts out there by recommending one show from somewhere around the world. You'll hear great stories, interesting interviews, and sharp analysis of international issues. Sometimes I'm going to talk to the host of the show we're featuring, and other times we'll bring you audio from our own newsroom here at FP. Oh, I want to add, if you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you've probably heard our show called First Person. Starting today, FP Playlist is going to replace that. If you like what you hear, you can download a new episode every Wednesday and subscribe in all the usual places. Okay, here goes. We're going to start today's show by introducing you to a podcast produced in Israel. It's called Israel Story, and the host is Mishy Harmon. Mishy Harmon, welcome to FP Playlist, Foreign Policy's newest podcast. I have to start by checking my journalistic objectivity for a moment so I can tell you how much I love Israel Story, your podcast. It's, it's really good, <laughs> Thank man. Thank you so much. It's smart, it's funny, it's sometimes sad, it's always quirky and original. But what made it so captivating, I think, is not just the quality of the stories, it's this very specific and somewhat quixotic choice you made to avoid the topics that dominate media coverage of Israel, normally politics, security, religion, and to focus instead on all the other aspects of life in the country that outsiders, even people pretty familiar with Israel, never hear about. But I want to start with a more basic question. Um, As you admit in the first podcast, the one we're going to focus on today, the show started as a very blatant and unsubtle ripoff of a much more famous podcast and radio show, perhaps the most popular one going, This American Life. So tell me, why did you and your co-creators go this way? And why did you start a podcast in the first place? So basically, we stumbled upon this completely by chance. Um, I started the show together with three of my uh, closest childhood friends. We'd all grown up together and uh, then dispersed and uh, went to colleges and universities and the army and so on and so forth. And many years later, um, we we got back together and um, we set off on this um, massive road trip. It was a 13,000 mile long road trip in the States through, I think, 34 states. And my best friend, Roy, um, said, listen, you're going to be spending so much time in the car. Why don't I uh, download a... Uh, something called a podcast to your phone. I had just purchased my very first uh, smartphone and uh, he downloaded um, hundreds of episodes of This American Life. So I played one. And even though I was sitting in the car, um, I was sort of magically transformed to all these lives of um, Americans who I would never really otherwise meet or, or interact with or encounter. And it was so amazing. And the only thing that I could think about almost immediately was we should really do something like this in Israel, um, mainly because even though people listen to radio a ton here in Israel, um, almost um, all of daytime radio is uh, exclusively news and current affairs. 
And I thought that if we could tell a different kind of story about Israel, one that actually took the time to uh, approach people as as people and tell their stories, um, we would be able to do something that would be really uh, unusual because, as you said, I mean, most people, when they think about Israel, they think either about politics, um, BB, uh, Iranian threats of Iranian bombs, uh, Security Council resolutions, uh, the occupation. But what, you, what none of these people are thinking of Israel is, is this sort of rich human tapestry of regular people. Israel has, you know, it's an immigrant society, so there are people from all over with different traditions um, living in close proximity. And it's a real, um, it's a real wonderful place to sort of dive into society and try to uh, try to come up with these stories that at the end of the day, we hoped would, um, would show people a different side of this country with regular people. Now, were you worried about pissing off Ira Glass, the creator of This American Life? <laughs> um, you know, Ira, um, the very first conversation that we had was that uh, he said, uh, he said, like, oh, you're the Israelis who are ripping off my show. I totally remember. I, I, said, I said to you, like, oh, are you the Israelis who are ripping off our show? <laughs> I had heard about you. And is that how you felt that we were the Israelis that were ripping off your show? Well, it isn't a question of how I feel. That's just a statement of fact. You are the Israelis who are ripping <laughs> off our show. Right. So the story that we've chosen is called Truly Fake, and it's from the first episode, which was called Faking It. The story focuses on this colorful character from the 19th century, Moses Wilhelm Shapira, who was a forger of Israeli and Moabite antiquities, um, initially known as the best antique dealer in, in Israel, but then accused of being a fraud. In a superficial sense, the story sort of reads like um, that of a colorful rogue who almost pulled off the scam of the century and then got caught. But on another level, it's also about lost history and religion. I mention all of this just to highlight the way that despite your intentions, it seems like even from the first episode, you couldn't actually get completely away from religion, history, and politics, even when you tried. And I know from my own reporting in Israel that these three topics, history, religion, conflict, are so closely woven into Israeli life that every story from Israel, no matter how ordinary or quotidian, ends up involving at least one of them because there's just no avoiding them. So, yeah, I actually completely agree with what you said. Um, the story of Shapira is a little bit of an outlier for us because, uh, as, first of all, as I said, it was one of the very, very first stories we did. But, but secondly, it, uh, it, it was all about a character who had been dead for 130 years uh, by, mm -hmm. by the time we, we recorded the story. So I had an obsession with this uh, figure of Shapira since I first stumbled upon him when I was in high school. And... Uh, as we say in the piece, once you sort of uh, enter this world of uh, uh, archaeological forgeries or maybe forgeries, then it's uh, all-encompassing and there's this sort of subculture uh, of people who are obsessed with these kind of things. But on a more uh, sort of interesting uh, level, I think, what really I think this story gets at is 
is is the question of what is a forgery and what is what is something that's that's real as opposed to something that's not real and uh this sort of notion that something could be both both real and fake at the same time uh was was a wonderful uh a wonderful topic with which to start the the show because uh, we felt that you know here this was our very first episode we were trying to fake it and become the israeli this american life and we didn't know if what we were doing was real or fake either Right, right. Well, you faked it till you made it. Uh, so congratulations. I have about a million more questions to ask you because I'm such a fan of the show, but I don't want to deprive audience, our audience of the chance to actually hear it. So thank you for talking, uh, Mishi. Without further ado, here is Truly Fake from Season 1, Episode 1 of the podcast Israel Story. Depending on who you talk to, Moshe, Moses, Wilhelm Shapira is either a trickster of epic proportions or the most unlucky fellow you can imagine. His story came to be known as the Shapira Affair, and many people are completely absorbed with it. Micha Shagrir is one of them. He's making a documentary film about Shapira and gives us the nutshell version. The time is 1883. A Jew from Jerusalem, actually a converted Jew, comes to... Uh, London to the British Museum. It sounds like a joke, but he brings with him 15 scrolls on which he's claiming uh, his original text of Deuteronomy. There is a big excitement. The museum offers him one million pounds. One million pounds at 1883, it's... uh, hundred of millions of dollars today, but uh, the museum people are saying that they still have to make some researches, and then they come back to him and say, no business. We found uh, your past. You are a forger. Uh, We even checked the text and the scrolls themselves, a forgery. The man leaves England, desperate, uh, and after a year, uh, kills himself with a bullet in his head. We always think that fake and real are, are opposites. You know, if something is fake, by definition it isn't real, and, and vice versa. But, well, the Shapira affair... This story of a man selling a fake manuscript and getting caught shows us that sometimes reality is just much more complicated than that. Because the thing is that not everyone believes he actually was a forger. They think he was an artist or a man giving people what they wanted or, and this is the most intriguing possibility of all, someone who got his hands on one of the most significant real artifacts of all time and managed to lose it. I didn't know it when I began researching the story, but this saga, Shapiromania, as many of the people I talk to call it, continues to stir up really intense emotions, even though it took place more than 130 years ago. I'm following for many, many years. I am like a secret detective. Every day I think about him, or I do something that is related to the... Uh, to his story. I go with him 
everywhere, and he is with me in the archives, in the libraries, in Europe, in Israel, in Australia. So, fake? Not fake? Let's start from the beginning. In 1855, Moshe Shapira, a good Jew from an Orthodox family, left his home in the Ukrainian village of Kamanyets Podolsky and set off on a long journey with his grandfather. They were going to the Holy Land where, rumors had it, the Messiah was about to make an appearance. En route, somewhere in Romania, the grandpa died, and Shapira started mingling with all kinds of types. Most of them were representatives of an organization with a really catchy name, the London Society for Promoting Christianity Amongst the Jews. They promised him, with all their might, that the Messiah had actually already come, and that his name was Jesus. Moshe was slowly convinced. And when he arrived in Jerusalem a year later, he was a Christian, and his name was now Moses Wilhelm. In Jerusalem, he joined a small community of Protestants and converted Jews. My name is Rechav Rubin, and I'm known by uh, most friends as Buni. Buni is a professor of geography at the Hebrew University. Well, there was in Jerusalem a group, kind of a social community of European people. Some of them were missionaries, others were uh, scholars who uh, were involved in the study of the history of the Holy Land. But Shapira wasn't really interested in the mission, or for that matter, in research. He wanted to be a businessman. So he opened a small souvenir shop in the Christian quarter of the old city in Jerusalem. Irit Salman, a true Shapirologist, who even curated an exhibit about him, explains. Well, he had one of the first shops of uh, antiquity uh, in Jerusalem. So he sold everything which he could uh, to the tourists. He sold Bibles, he sold uh, dried flowers from the Holy Land, which the German uh, pilgrims liked very much, and memorabilia from any kind. And he sold, as a matter of fact, the illusions that they touch history because they grew on the Bible and on the New Testament. And all of a sudden, they hold in their hands something which maybe also Jesus Christ uh, kept it. So it was very, very strong. In addition to those kinds of souvenirs, which still fill the shops of the old city, Shapira began selling antiquities that Bedouins from the area found and brought to him. His shop was a huge hit, and he became one of the best-known merchants in town. It was a very famous uh, shop. It was even written on the front of the shop that he's the representative of the British Museum, not just a, a regular shop. In the Bedeker Tourist Guide from the 19th century, it was written that this is the best antique shop in Palestine. Shapira's life, as we say in Israel, was dvash, all honey. He married Rosetta, a devout German nurse. They had two girls, Augusta and Miriam, and his business was booming. And then, one hot summer day in August 1868, a discovery made in Divan, east of the Jordan River, changed his life. Local Bedouins had found a large basalt stone, inscribed with markings that sort of looked like footprints of a chicken. Shapira rushed to see the stone, as did another archaeology enthusiast, a young French diplomat by the name of Charles Clermont Ganon, who would, very quickly, turn out to be Shapira's arch-nemesis. 
it seemed odd to the Bedouins that all these distinguished Europeans were so excited about the rock and were fighting amongst themselves over who would pay a higher price to buy it. They were sure it had to contain some valuable treasure inside. So one night, they rolled the stone into a bonfire, poured cold water over it, and smashed it to smithereens. They were pretty disappointed. The crazy Europeans, it seemed, had been fighting over a plain black rock. No treasure. But Clermont Ganot had had his aide copy the inscription before it was smashed. And when he deciphered the lines, it turned out it really was a treasure. The 34 lines on the Meishastili, that's what they call the stone, described a series of wars between the king of Moab and the Israelites, the exact same war described in the second book of Kings. Now, that might not sound super exciting today, but this was one of the very earliest external, independent accounts that verified a biblical tale. The craze about finding archaeological proof of the Bible began. Everyone wanted Moabite artifacts. Very soon, a tourist guide, Arabic tourist guide, came to him after he opened the shop and made him an offer he couldn't resist. He said, whatever you sell to the tourist during the day, I can complete during the night, which means um, to make fakes. Here's Buni Rubin, the geographer. Well... We don't, we don't know for sure. I can only make a, a guess that if the demand was uh, going up and up and up, then a businessman like Shapiro wanted to have enough stock in his um, shop in order to uh, supply this uh, demand for antiques. So uh, I guess if he couldn't get enough antiques from proper sources or or kosher pieces, then it may well be that he uh, thought how to supply this demand by producing or actually faking them. We'll be right back. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind. Back. Shapira had seen the Moabite letters on the Meshastili. And very soon in the market um, started to appear clay pieces with unknown uh, letters that nobody could uh, read, which means he created a new culture which called Moabitica. He liked it very much, and he started to get from the Bedouin who used to cross the Jordan uh, and to bring all kinds of antiques, part of them authentic. Almost overnight, Shapira's collection of Moabite clay artifacts became famous all over the world. Articles were written about it, new theories were based on it, people said the collection was priceless, and Shapira himself became a major celebrity within the antiquities world. 
But if you look at Shapira's fakes today, even if you know nothing about archaeology, they look like something that a fifth grader made in an arts and crafts workshop. It's hard to imagine how these statues, figurines, and ceramic human heads with gibberish inscriptions copied directly from the letters of the Meshastili fooled the biggest experts of the time. But I guess we can be more forgiving. After all, they had nothing to compare it with. So most people just believe that that was what Moabite archaeology looked like. Today, when we look at those pieces, it looks so clumsy and so unprofessional. All the <laughs> stick the letters or the sculptures of head of people from stone, from clay. They look so strange. Today, if you look at it, I look at it, not professional, we would say, ah, this is a fake. But at that time, nobody knew it, so nobody could identify it. The, everybody wanted to believe. And Shapira totally took advantage of that willingness to believe. In 1873, he convinced the Archaeological Museum in Berlin, the Altus Museum, to buy 1,700 pieces from his collection. For those who were skeptic, he invited to come with him to an expedition, and he took them to the desert or to Transjordan, and the Bedouins prepared for him in advance uh, the area where he used to take them, as if they are going to excavate. And they just scratched the ground and they found pieces of uh, pottery and archaeologic uh, remains, and he prepared the visit very, very well. The only problem with Shapira's pieces was that most of them were, we've seen, completely bogus. But even today... There are people who don't exactly see them that way. Uri Katz, a collector of Shapira fakes, for example, has a soft spot for him. It's kind of an original maverick or biblical outsider artist or something like that. The artifacts that he was selling were really something new. It was not a copy of anything which we knew before. Shapira or whoever made the artifacts were some, some people of, of some originality. Because they invented the, the, the artifacts, they, they invented the, the shape and whatever. He created something new in, in some way. Micha, who we heard at the beginning, basically agrees. No, he was not a chronicle swindler. He was not a real swindler, but yes, he had his tricks. When the folks at the Berlin Museum realized the artifact's true nature, so to speak... They weren't amused. They were embarrassed and immediately hid the collection deep in the storage rooms. Of course, the man who proved to the experts in Berlin that these were all fakes was none other than Shapira's biggest rival, Clermont Ganot. Once the forgery was discovered, Shapira and his collection became sort of a laughingstock. He returned to his shop and to the simple, silly souvenirs. But, as happens, time passed, and people began to forget the saga. A few years later, his tarnished reputation almost completely rehabilitated, Shapira came out with a declaration that immediately rocked the entire world. He claimed that he held 17 parchment scrolls inscribed with an unknown version of the Book of Deuteronomy, the final book of the Torah, written in an early Hebrew script. 
Perhaps these were the original scrolls that Moses received from God, he hinted. Or maybe a version written down at the time of Jesus by a retiring sect in the Judean desert, where, he said, the Bedouins who brought him the scrolls had found them. Obviously, this was huge. The book of Deuteronomy, maybe Moses' own personal copy? But there was one more surprise. Here's Micha, the filmmaker. In the book that Shapira brought, there are 11 commandments. What is the 11th? Do love your friend as you love yourself. Love thy neighbor. What does it mean? Is it a very Jewish version or is it a very Christian version? With that tantalizing puzzle unresolved, Shapira began touring all of Europe with his scrolls. And you gotta understand, this was front-page news in all the biggest newspapers around the continent for an entire year. The whole world, it seemed, was following the saga of Shapira and his precious scrolls. He brought it to the German, and the German, as you remember, bought already 1,700 uh, fake pieces from him. And after a few months... They thought about it, and they decided not to buy it. And then he came to the British Museum. They believed him. The British were very excited from it because they loved the Bible. Two of the scrolls were exhibited to the excited public, who queued up for hours to get a peek. Even the British Prime Minister, Gladstone, came to see them and tried to help raise the funds. The sum of money he asked was unbelievable. million sterling in 1883. Today, it's also a lot of money, but then it was, whew. In fact, he said to his daughter before he went to his last journey, when I come back, you will be the richest girl in the world. But then, of course, our French friend, Clermont Ganot, rushed over from Paris. Despite the fact that there was no tunnel and no uh, fast, uh, fast train, but it was uh, fast enough to, for, from one day to the other. Then... Clermont Ganot arrived, the same Clermont Ganot which we met before in Jerusalem. Clermont Ganot came, he looked at the, at the scrolls, and then he said, it, it, This is forgery. And he said that it's the most chutzpedic fake in the history. <laughs> yes. The British press was wild, the story was everywhere. They didn't stop to write about it day and night in all the newspapers. The English got a cold feet and they, they told Shapira, sorry, we, cannot, we don't take the scrolls. Even for a tough survivor like Shapira, this was a really hard hit. He went from place to place, from country to country, all over Europe. And in March 84, he arrived to a small hotel in Rotterdam and committed suicide. And what happened to the scrolls that caused a worldwide frenzy and were nearly sold for a million pounds? The scroll afterwards was sold in a fair to a collector who bought it for 16 sterling. And they say that his library was burned and they never, they were never found. End of story? Well, not exactly. A little more than 60 years after Shapira killed himself in that Rotterdam motel, 
disgraced, humiliated, and penniless. A Bedouin shepherd, Muhammad Adib, was out grazing his flock near Qumran, in the north of the Dead Sea. When one of his sheep ran into a cave and wouldn't come back, the shepherd threw a little rock which hit something that made a strange sound. That's how the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, exactly in the same area where Shapira claimed that the Bedouins had found his scrolls. A new, completely horrifying possibility emerged. Could it be that Shapira's scrolls, that were maligned and destroyed, were real after all? To be really honest, there is a small, a tiny, like this, what if? And what if these pieces, which are lost now, were not faked? What if part of them was authentic? Then we lost something which might have been very, very important. How can we know? How can we ever know how to deal, how, how, to, how to work out this tiny little what if? The tiny what if, I think, will, will be an open uh, question for, forever. <laughs> it's an, it remains a, a secret. And it will remain, I'm afraid. This will, will keep us on, uh, continuing to, to ask ourselves, was it a fake or not? Yes, in, in, as a matter of fact, in my, in my mind, the wonderful thing is that there was no way to find physically the, the artifact, the strips. The story of the, of the scrolls uh, remains uh, un, unsolved. And, and I'm, I, I like it like, this way. It's not, our, it's not our job to solve everything, and I like it to, to remain as it is. In one final, ironic twist that only a forger like Shapiro would really appreciate, his fakes have now themselves become very valuable collector's items. In fact, today people talk of real Shapira fakes, and that's what Irit called her exhibit about him, Truly Fake. I think it's a great name. In English, it's truly fake. And in Hebrew, ziyuf amiti, because it was really fake. <laughs> so it's a real fake. And who knows? Maybe somewhere in the backroom workshop of a souvenir store in the narrow streets of Jerusalem's bustling Christian quarter, someone right now is sitting down and making fake Shapira fakes. That was Mishy Harmon, the host of Israel Story, from the episode called Faking It. It was first aired in 2014. And that's our first episode of Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. And for more information about FB Podcasts, check out our website, foreignpolicy.com, or join our Facebook group. Our show was produced by Darcy Palder, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. Our theme music was composed by Nolan Schneider. A big thanks to Mishy Harmon and Israel Story for allowing us to use their episode. Israel Story is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, and I'll see you back here next week.